You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Right, good morning everybody. Good to see you all. Always nice to hear the uh, hubbub of conversations. I hope I'm not interrupting anything too significant or serious. There is always after the meeting, if you want to carry those on. Uh, But in the meantime, a quick diversion through the Word of God. Uh, So just by way of introduction, my name is John. I've been a long-standing member of City Church, uh, coming up for 13 years now. Can you believe it? Um, So really good to be here this morning and to be sharing with you in a few minutes from the Gospel of Mark. Um, I know a number of you have asked about uh, my wife, Lorena, who's been uh, recently in Uganda, and as you can see, has made it safely back. So thank you for all of your prayers uh, and contributions and thoughts uh, and all of that. Uh, We would still very much appreciate your continued prayers. Uh, The journey back has been somewhat uh, challenging with some sickness interfering with flights and whatnot. So please hold up, Lorena, in your prayers if you wouldn't mind. So that's a quick plug of my own before we get stuck into... uh, plugging Jesus this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Right, so we've been working through the lectionary calendar this year, and in that lectionary calendar, it is the last Sunday before Lent. So before we follow Jesus off into the wilderness and fast and deny ourselves and repent uh, as he goes on that final journey towards his humiliation and death, we today have uh, in our lectionary an event known as the Transfiguration. So before you decide how many Twixes it's okay to eat in the next three days, let's focus back in on Mark and let's ask the question, what is a transfiguration? So Mark chapter 9 hopefully is going to tell us, it should come up on the screen. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared before them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For they were afraid, and he did not know what to say. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my one dear son, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As far as I can tell, as far as miracles go in the Gospels, this one is unique. In terms of Jesus' earthly miracle, this appears to be the only miracle that happens to Jesus. And if I'm entirely honest, reading through this, I, I find the whole episode a bit bewildering and a little unsettling. And judging by the reactions of the disciples, I don't think I'm the only one. At face value, it's really odd, right? I'm seeing some nods, good. But it's more than just that. And the, as I was preparing, the only thing I could think of, it, at Christmas time, my sister loves to make 
an absolutely giant fruit salad. And, and this might divide opinion, um, but my sister's measure of a great Christmas fruit salad is one that contains the largest variety of fruits possible. So that's this year's effort, 13 different fruits. There's the picture. Uh, you look at that bowl and you can clearly see that there are fruits involved. Which ones? All of them. And you look at this passage and you can clearly see that there are Old Testament references involved. Which ones? Like all of them. Okay, maybe not quite, but there's obviously a lot crammed into a few short verses. So I'm going to try and walk through some of those things today, some of those things this morning as we look at this passage in a bit more detail. I'm going to try and draw some of that out. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. Sorry if that's a bit confusing if you're trying to follow along on your device or your Bible. Uh, but the place we're going to start is with six days later. Now, Mark is normally, typically, a really fast-paced narrative. Everything is then, or immediately, or and, in your Bibles. You see, then this happened, and immediately this happened, and then this happened. And all of a sudden, we have the specificity that should really draw our attention. Because a specific number of days, a specific gap between things is actually pretty unusual in Mark. And so, in order to understand some of what's going on over here, we're going to have to go and have a look at what happened six days before. That six days, or maybe even more than that, in the Gospel of Mark, they could be considered a dividing point, almost like an interval. If you imagine the first eight chapters of Mark kind of being Act 1 in the play, and now we've got an interval of six days, and now you've got Act 2 coming along that we're just at the start of. And Act 1 finished on something of a cliffhanger. We have this kind of revelatory moment that comes to bear, a thing that has been hinted at throughout the book up until that point is suddenly named out loud. And those of us with ears to hear or eyes to see, as Mark might put it, might have been suspecting this moment all the way through the first eight chapters. And it's this question of who is Jesus? Jesus is on the road with his disciples in chapter 8, and he asks them directly, who do you say that I am? Now, they've been with him ever since chapter 1. They've walked every step of this book. They've seen all that he's had to do. They've heard all that he's got to say, and fair play, Peter nails it first time. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the king that we've all been waiting for. Peter absolutely nails it. Now, up until this point, you might have confused Jesus for just another rabbi, just another teacher. Uh, if you'd done a cursory reading through the text, you might think that he's just another guy starting just another sect. But what Peter says over here creates a complete separation from that as a possibility. It gives us this direct answer for the first time in Mark for who Jesus is and ultimately creates this foundation point for the establishment of the church. So that's great. We know who Jesus is. And as soon as we know who Jesus is, as soon as we know that he's the long-awaited Messiah, the, the king that we've all been waiting for, there's a shocking twist that nobody saw coming. Because Jesus starts to mess with our idea of what it means to be
be a Messiah king. He messes with the disciples' idea of what it means to be the Messiah king. He says, yes, I'm a king, but I'm a king who must suffer and die and rise again. Peter can't handle this. He takes Jesus to one side. It's way too confusing to him. And he, Jesus, what are you on about? Kings aren't supposed to suffer and die, right? Kings are supposed to be victorious and happy and glorious and long-lived and inspirational, right? But Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, no, no, Peter. You've mixed up God's interests with man's interests. And immediately, as if that wasn't shocking enough, Jesus is now going on and saying things like, yes, I'm going to suffer and die shamefully, but if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and actually, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And at this point, Peter must be kind of either furious or wishing the ground would just open up and swallow him whole. And at that point, the curtain comes down in Act 1. We've answered the question, who is Jesus? And we're setting up Act 2 beautifully to answer the question of, what is Jesus' purpose? Is he really going to suffer and die? So fast forward a few days and we find Act 2 of Mark starting on a high, quite literally, as six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them alone up a high mountain. Which mountain are we talking about? Several have been proposed. I don't think it matters. Mark doesn't think to tell us. But I do think the fact that it's a mountain is important. Throughout the narrative of Mark, if you read closely, Mark has taken us to cities, he's taken us to towns, he's taken us to villages, he's taken us to lakes, to seas, beaches, meadows, rivers, the wilderness. This is the first time he's taking us up a mountain. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the hairs in the back of your neck should be standing up. Because being led up a mountain in the Old Testament is often more than just a challenging afternoon's hike. It was on top of the mountain that Abraham encountered the angel of the Lord and Isaac was redeemed and the covenant was renewed. It was on top of the mountain that Moses encountered the Lord and received the law. It was on top of the mountain that Solomon built his temple which became the dwelling place of God amongst men. It was on top of the mountain that Elijah encountered God in a still small voice and was vindicated and strengthened in his ministry. And so when we see Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up the mountain, perhaps the underlying expectation is big encounter with God. Now just to be clear, this is the age of the church. You don't have to get as high up as you can to encounter God. God is not more present up on the balcony than he is down here. If anything, God is present in his people, the church. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if you want an encounter with God, perhaps a great place to start is here on a Sunday morning in the citadel as you engage with his people. I'm not sure we would have been my first church choice to 
facilitate encounters with God. But I think God shows his glory all the more in that he's able to use weak, fragile, broken, incompetent, sinful mortals such as ourselves to bring himself to bear as an encounter with others. The text tells us, it says, then Elijah appeared before them along with Moses. So Elijah and Moses had both received visions of the glory of God on the mountain, in the wilderness, and here again they appear on top of a mountain alongside Jesus. So why these two? Now, lots of reasons have been proposed by the commentators. Uh, I don't see why a lot of them can't be true at the same time. Now, firstly, without a doubt, these are the two most significant leaders in two most respected personalities, the two giants, if you like, in all of Jewish history. I think most would agree that Moses probably represents the law and Elijah the prophets. In other words, they represent all of Hebrew scripture. But I think it's a little bit more than just that. If anything, they encompass, they represent the full revelation of God to his people up until that point. Full revelation of God to his people up until that point. These are the two heavyweights of the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at the very last three verses of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, to whom at Horeb I gave rules and regulations for all Israel to obey. Look, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. He will encourage fathers and children to return to me so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. So the Old Testament ends, finishes with Moses and Elijah the final parting words of God's revelation to his chosen people leaves Moses and Elijah lingering in their thoughts. And now we see them present with Jesus on the mountain. It's as if Jesus becomes the bridge between the old and something new. It's as if Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets are pointing towards. It's as if at this moment we have a marker that we are entering a new age as signified by the presence of Elijah. You see, in Malachi, God promised to send Elijah before the last days, and here he is. In addition, God has asked his people to remember Moses and his receipt of the law on top of a mountain. Now, to do that, we need to go back to Exodus 24, where a cloud descends on Mount Horeb, in which the glory of God is present And after six days, Moses is invited into the cloud to receive the law. After six days. And here we have Jesus who goes up a mountain after six days to be in the presence of the Lord, which descends in a cloud, just like Moses did. Why is that significant? Obviously, we can see the parallels. What's going on here? Well, the book of Deuteronomy, verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 15, uh, Moses speaks saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites. 
this is the prophet that the Israelites have been waiting to arrive for 1,500 years. A prophet like Moses, someone as significant as Moses was. But Jesus is someone even more significant than Moses is because Elijah's presence as Malachi's restorer of all things indicates we're not just talking about a prophet like Moses, we're talking about a prophet like Moses but also through which the fulfillment of all things has arrived. Moses is a representative of the old covenant and the promise but Jesus is the one in whom the promise of a greater covenant, a greater second exodus becomes a reality. It says, and his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. And that's where washing powder commercials got the idea from. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is always presented as shining brilliance or bright light. When Moses spent 40 days in the presence of the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments, he came down the mountain and his face shone with the glory of the Lord. Moses' face was reflecting the divine presence, and it was so startling we're told that Moses had to wear a veil over his face because the people were afraid to come near him. And here we have the new Moses up a mountain, glowing in a radiant manner, his clothes shining whiter than ordinary washing powders can make them. But there's one massive difference here. We're in verse three and Jesus is glowing, but the cloud hiding the presence of the Lord doesn't show up until verse seven. How can Jesus reflect the glory of the Lord if the Lord is not there? My take on that is that that's because Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of the Lord like Moses did. Jesus is producing the unsurpassed glory of God in and of himself. Jesus doesn't point to the glory of God like Moses did. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Now Peter, bless him, recognizes that something significant is going on. Man of action he is. He wants to do something. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For they were afraid and he didn't know what to say. Now, those of you who have read the Gospels will recognize Peter's clumsy responses to things. Um, it's consistent with his character throughout the Gospels. I don't think you would include something as ridiculous as this if you were making this stuff up. For me, this gives the story tremendous credibility. Peter completely misinterprets the right response, although I have to wonder if any of us would have done any better in his shoes. Maybe Peter wants to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the time when the Jewish nation would get together and make tents uh, and, and, and dwell in remembering their time in the wilderness. He wouldn't be the first person in history to say something silly when under pressure. Maybe he's just a massive fan of camping. Maybe he knows enough of his Old Testament to know that if you stand unsheltered, 
from the glory of God on the mountain, you will die. Maybe this is why he wants to erect some tents. Perhaps the source of the potential death, impending death, is the source of his fear. Whatever it is, it seems that Peter has at least worked out that Jesus is important. And so important that he's in the same category as these massive characters in the Jewish faith, Moses and Elijah. So let's honor Jesus by treating him as an equal to these greats. What Peter intends as an act of honor, though, really isn't that at all. Because as we've seen already, Jesus is far greater than these greats. Perhaps a lesson that we need to be careful how we choose to honor God. History is littered with examples of those who by trying to honor God brought dishonor. Things like the Crusades still loom large in our Western culture. How many ministries have been brought low when it transpired that ultimately the ministry was bringing honor to the minister rather than to God? probably a good test actually if you feel that you're doing something to honor God it's worth asking the question who is this really honoring is this about me and what I want or is this about what God wants maybe Peter had understood that Jesus was destined for glory he had after all recognized Jesus as being the Christ he nailed the question he got it right and here is Jesus bathed in glory on the mountaintop Surely this is it. Surely this is what God intended. This must be the promised glory. Let's stay here forever. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, present. All is now fulfilled. God's kingdom is at hand. Surely Peter wants to dwell in the promised glory right now. He wants to skip the queue. He wants to change the queue, I should say. (laughs) He's forgotten that time just six days ago when Jesus talked about a path of suffering and denial. See, Peter wants what we all want, a faster route to the front, a shortcut to our final vindication. Now, when we enter into worship together, the sense of God's presence is real. We experience the joy of fellowshipping together. Maybe the prayer time is powerful and uplifting. Those things are just a foreshadowing of what is to come. They're not glory in and of itself, but a peep through the letterbox to what our future holds. They're there to encourage us, they're there to strengthen us, they're there to fill us with faith, they're there to build our confidence. But our call as a church isn't to lock ourselves away with other Christians and worship forever until the world ends. You can spend your whole Christian experience chasing the ultimate worship, the ultimate preacher, the ultimate church, the ultimate conference, the ultimate book, the ultimate whatever, and all those things may bring glimpses of glory to come, but that is all they are, is glimpses. Ultimate glory is still to come. Our job is to be the church, not to chase the glory. Now, thankfully, before Peter can embarrass himself any further, this cloud overshadows them. The cloud in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's promise and his protection. You might remember that in the book of Exodus, as they headed out from the Red Sea, uh, the, the Lord went before them as a pillar of cloud, a practical way to lead them, a practical way to shelter them from the hot 
Middle Eastern sun. And when they were pursued by the Egyptian army, that cloud descended, creating a barrier between the Egyptians and the Israelites uh, as they waited to cross the Red Sea. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, it was in the cloud. The cloud is God's tabernacle. The cloud is God's tent. It's the thing that both reveals and conceals His glory at the same time. And out of that cloud, the Lord speaks. He doesn't have much to say, but what He does say hits home with power. This is my one dear son. Listen to him. This is the second time we've seen God speaking over Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. At the beginning of Act 1 of Mark, Mark 1 verse 11, Jesus has just been baptized. He's coming out of the water. And the Lord says, You are my one dear son. In you I take great delight. It's been remarked before that before Jesus had said or done anything in his ministry, he was already approved as the object of God's elected pleasure. I think there's possibly a message in there for us who, like Peter, always want to do stuff to obtain God's pleasure. What can I do? What can I do? To receive God's pleasure and approval, there is nothing you need to do, nothing you can do except be his child. If you believe in Jesus, if you've received Jesus, then you have that right to be God's child and to receive his pleasure and his approval. And now at the start of Act 2 of Mark, God speaks again. Before he spoke to Jesus to vindicate him, now he spoke, speaks to those around Jesus. And the form is almost identical, but the message is different. This is my one dear son, Listen to him. At this point, it's not just the person of Jesus who is approved by God. It is the purpose of Jesus that is approved by God. God approves the mission of his one dear son to suffer and to die and to rise again. And this stress on Jesus being the one dear son for me reveals that the transfiguration isn't just about a promise of future glory. It tells me that the resplendent glory of God is present in Jesus even in his current form. And just for the moment that veil of his humanity is lifted and the disciples become witnesses of that glory. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's exactly what Peter didn't do in the previous chapter. Peter had understood who Jesus was, the Messiah, full marks Peter. But when Jesus starts to talk about his purpose, Peter goes, no, 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 don't do that, Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. Peter wants to stay on the mountain in glory forever. He had not been listening to what Jesus' purpose was. But that phrase, listen to him, goes much deeper than just a rebuke to Peter. We've already seen how Jesus might well be the prophet like Moses, prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. I didn't read the full verse when we went there, but the full verse goes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The Lord responds to Moses a few verses later saying, I will raise up a prophet like you, that's Moses, for them from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them whatever I command 
I will personally hold responsible anyone who pays no attention to the words that prophet speaks in my name. For 1,500 years, the voices that Israel have listened to are that of the law and the prophets. And now in the very presence of the two men who epitomize and represent the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, God himself reveals the new voice his people are to listen to. The whole situation, the whole context, the whole story of the Old Testament comes to a focal point, which means God can convey the conclusion in just three words. Listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment to the conclusion of the story of Israel and, the per- and surpasses, completely surpasses the law and the prophets in importance. Jesus is the prophet we must listen to as the final bearer of the word of God. The presence of the cloud, the solemn declaration of the voice, they all affirm the same thing, the same truth. Jesus is the unique son of God who enjoys the unbroken presence and approval of God. This whole episode isn't just about glory though. It's about vindication of suffering and how the two are closely entwined in Jesus' earthly purpose. In Mark 8, once we know who Jesus is, he speaks of his suffering and death and within a few days he's up a mountain shining with divine brilliance. In that transition from Act 1 of Mark to Act 2, we have suffering and then we have glory. The greatest prophets of Jewish history stand by as witnesses to this, this glory, this unspoken vindication of the way that suffering leads to glory. And then if there were any further doubt, God himself puts his stamp of approval on the idea. Jesus ascends to a high point and there he is glorified along two who do not speak with three close companions as witnesses. Am I talking about Mark 9 or am I talking about Mark 15? Am I talking about Jesus ascending a mountain where he is glorified alongside two prophets who do not speak with Peter, James and John as witnesses? Or am I talking about Jesus ascending the cross where he is glorified alongside two outlaws who do not speak with Mary, Mary and Salome as witnesses? Glory, suffering, two sides of the same coin when it comes to Jesus. And if we're to listen to him and to reflect on his words in chapter 8, then glory and suffering are two sides of the same coin when it comes to our walk with him too. As Alan mentioned earlier when he brought that word, the painful journey to getting to the end place may have as much value as the end place in itself. Suffering, glory, two sides of the same coin. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. Cloud is gone, Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Jesus remains. Moses is gone, Elijah is gone. Only Jesus remains as the bridge between God and humanity. If you want to connect with God, there is only one way. 
that is through Jesus. I said up front there were a lot of Old Testament references in this passage. I've tried to draw some of them out, and uh, some of that has left me wondering, really, who is referencing who. Is Mark referencing the Old Testament narrative to shine light on the story of Jesus, or is it the Old Testament narrative was always a reference point for what was to come in Jesus? Is Mark drawing from the Old Testament, or is the whole Old Testament pointing towards Jesus? I'm left thinking it's probably both, but maybe more the latter than the former. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament points to. It's been a real privilege to engage with this passage for a few weeks now, and I feel I've understood a little bit more, and I hope you have as well in terms of what I've brought today, but I'm not sure I find it any less unsettling maybe even more so. I think that's kind of the point. I don't think you can come face to face with the glory of God and feel comfortable. I think this passage lays out a challenge to all of us. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? It's easy to see Jesus as a great man, easy to see him as a prophet, a teacher, a founder of a religion. Can you accept him as the visible glory of the invisible God? Can you accept him as the unique son of God who enjoys the unbroken presence and approval of God? Perhaps you can't yet. Perhaps you're unable to accept Jesus for who the Bible reveals him to be. Let me add my encouragement to that of Peter's from earlier. Do not leave here today without seeking to rectify that. If you do not know Jesus, find someone here who can pray with you. Turn to the person next to you. Turn to the person who brought you. Come to the front, speak with myself, Pete, Alan. Find someone who can pray to remove the veil from your eyes and to see Jesus for who he really is. Let's end in prayer. Father in heaven, whose son Jesus Christ was wonderfully transfigured before chosen witnesses upon the holy mountain and spoke of the exodus he would accomplish at Jerusalem, Give us strength so to hear his voice and bear our cross that in the world to come we may see him as he is who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit one God now and forever. Amen. That's the end of our meeting today. Please uh, Head out into the world and do good. And if you'd like to pray with uh, anyone based on anything you've seen or heard this morning, please do reach out. Thank you.